Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and Gemar Chatimah Tovah, a good final inscription in the Book of Life to you and to your loved ones. Sherry Branch is a woman who helps Dory and me with babysitting and some chores around the house. She's been a part of our lives from before our kids were even born, dating back to our apartment in Manhattan. We love her, and she is part of the fabric of our family. Sherry's from a small island in the Caribbean called St. Vincent's, and her skin color is black. One night a few weeks ago, Dory had some board meeting, and I had some commitment here at the synagogue, and Sherry was in charge of taking care of the afternoon and evening rituals with the kids, making sure they got home, did their homework, had a nutritious dinner, bathed, and bedtime. It was their first week of school as well. And always when... Um, Dory and I come home, we get a download on what it is that happened. Well, Elias was exhausted from his first week of school, and he barely made it through the bath and fell right asleep. But Eve had requested from Sherry to have a book read to her that she picked out from the Solomon Schechter Library. So she put her pajamas on, and they snuggled up in the bed as they normally do, and the book that Eve chose was a book, age-appropriate in the right language, about Rosa Parks, the woman who defied orders and law, and refused to give up her seat in 1955 on a public bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Her refusal to give up that seat sparked the civil rights riots and the Montgomery bus boycott. It invoked the leadership of people like Martin Luther King Jr. of blessed memory and others who came down to Montgomery. In essence, her being arrested by refusing to give up her seat changed the entire complexion of the racial issues from 1955 that brought us to where we are today. Sherry read that book, every page of it, in an age-appropriate language for Evie that night before bed. And as Dory and I got home from our respective meetings at our respective offices and works, we got the appropriate and regular download of everything that happened. How much homework did they do and what did they eat and behavioral issues. But as Sherry was telling us to download, which she did so regularly, there was something in her face that told us something was different. So we said, Sherry, what's up? She said, Evie asked to have this book read to her about Rosa Parks. And I read it to her. And as I was going through each page, Eve had a look on her face that I've never really seen on before. And when I asked her, what's going on, Evie? Evie said she was embarrassed by white people and the way that they treated black people. We, uh, we stayed up late that night, Dory, Sherry, and I at our kitchen table drinking some coffee and I think eating dried fruit and talking about our little girl and what makes her so aware, so keenly in tune with the inequity of another. Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not a result of how unique and brilliant and precocious she is. Yes, every parent thinks their child's the smartest child, and we're no exception to that. And she is a unique and precocious child. But I've met so many of your children, and I have been inspired by them. And there's nothing more unique about her than your children. And it's not parenting. And I don't say that to be self-deprecating. We're just as good as parents as all of you, meaning we make a lot of mistakes, and we don't have a handbook on it, and some things we get right and some things we don't. So that's not what made her do it. But I think what caused Evie to understand that deep inequity is because since the moment she entered this world, her life 
has been shaped by Jewish values. And I would argue that core to the being of a Jew is concern for and love for the downtrodden, the oppressed, and the other in our world, and seeing everyone as created in God's image. There was a philosopher by the name of Levinas who thought deeply about the word responsibility, which in Hebrew is achrayut. Achrayut. The shoresh, the core of that word, comes from alaf chetresh, which means acher, the other. And it teaches us that in order to be responsible, one must think of the other. We live in a big Jewish world that has countless permutations and spokes off of its wheel. But whether we are big or we are tall, we are reform or orthodox, we are observant or non-observant, kosher or not, yarmulke-wearing or bareheaded, egalitarian or separated by a barrier, the common denominator to every Jew, whether they were born into this religion or they chose to be a part of it, the admission for entry, if you will, is the very notion that we are all created in God's image. If you don't have that, then there's no way you can proudly say you are part of our covenant. It is the base for every Jew of every size, of every belief, of every background. It is impossible to be Jewish and to not have concern for the welfare and well-being and common respect of the other. And those that proudly claim to be Jewish and to ignore the other can't be. My daughter Evie understands that. Occasionally in life, we have things that conflict one with the other. Today is a perfect example of it. Today is Shabbat, and today is Yom Kippur. On Shabbat, we have a few responsibilities. We're supposed to make Kiddush in the evening and the morning. We're required to have Shalosh Udot. Some know it as Shalosh three meals. But when Shabbat coincides with Yom Kippur, did we make Kiddush last night? Do we make Kiddush today? Did anyone have breakfast or lunch today in constituting two of those three meals? No. And why not? Because Yom Kippur trumps Shabbat. And there will be times in our tradition where a law, as dictated by the Torah, the Mishnah, or the Talmud, might tell us a particular behavior, but our values and ethics tell us another. And when those two conflict, how we treat the other always trumps the specificity of the law. If it doesn't, we've missed its essence. I have redoubled my efforts in understanding the views of the other through a commitment to understanding pluralism. I have enrolled in a three-year fellowship from the Hartman Institute in Jerusalem that is dedicated solely to teaching rabbis how to see from another's lens. I spend three weeks in the summer for three years, and I spend one week in the winter for three years, and every week online studying with a group of different rabbis to understand the notion of plurality. Thirty of us in whole, and we are dedicated to learning about the other voices and the other views. In addition to all this study, I spend another hour and a half with two of my study partners, two other rabbis from this group, where we learn by Skype every Thursday from 1 o'clock until 2.30. My study partners 
are a rabbi who is a woman in the reform movement who lives in Manhattan and a male rabbi who's orthodox who lives in New Orleans and me. And we see things through a symphony of sounds and ideas and perspectives that had I studied on my own or studied with another conservative rabbi, I never would have seen or heard or appreciated. One day this summer, Lori and Uri, my two study partners and I, were studying a text in the Mishnah that talks about what do you do if you're reciting the Shema prayer, the basic prayer, the core prayer of our canon, and someone like Stan walks up to you when you're saying the prayer, he doesn't know you're saying the prayer, and he says, the Juntif for good Shabbos. What do you do? Do you stop your prayer, the important prayer of the Shema, and say good Shabbos to Stan? Or do you ignore Stan and you say to God, I'm going to continue with my prayer? Another conflict. The Mishnah tells us, without any ambiguity whatsoever, that we stop our prayer to God and we greet Stan, or whoever it is that's interrupting us. That God works in a way that if we ignore the feelings of another and focus on the feelings of God, that we've missed the essence of what the prayer is about in the first place. And how can we claim to be devout Jews who are praying with all of our hearts and ignoring one of God's creatures right in front of us? What's the purpose of that? As I was stuck on this text and understanding how the rabbis who had a deep appreciation of God and a fear of God could articulate that turning to the other counts more than turning to God. My two study partners, Lori and Uri, explained it beautifully to me. And they said, having fear of God means caring for the other. It's a basic sense of morality that's understood. And fear of God translates into respect for the most vulnerable members of our community. Where there is no fear of God, there's a fear that those same individuals will suffer. And thus a God-fearing person is one who cares for the other. In the image of God, each human was created. Each and every human. In our community, I've had some frustration in dealing with the other. It's been a point of issue for me that happened just about a year ago when our Jewish newspaper decided to retract a statement it made in celebration of two people of the same sex, both Jewish, who announced their intentions to marry one another. I was furious when I saw this. Not furious because there are some people in the Jewish world who are opposed to it, who call it an abomination as we read in the text, who say it's wrong and unhalachic. I'm not opposed to it for that reason. Those people who believe that theologically are entitled to believe that theologically. I don't stand at this bima with the arrogance of thinking that people need to change the way that they believe in God and the way that they practice. But I do have deep upset that those people didn't work within the grounds of sensitivity and thoughtfulness and understanding and compassion for the other. Because we can still hold true to our beliefs and our passions while having sensitivity and kindness and thoughtfulness. And the worst part of that entire episode to me was the way that those people in their love for each other were absolutely dismissed as members of our community and society, told that they can't be recognized in our joint communal newspaper. And if we admit that the basis for entry into our community is treating the other, regardless of our strife or our passion, 
How dare we then specify which halachot can also exclude you and which Jewish laws can include you? That's not the nature of the Judaism that all of us seek to practice. I want to share a story with you that happened to me and Dory this summer when I was at Hartman studying. The story of a young couple about our age who have three children. Their names are Jody and Gavin Samuels. They're originally from South Africa. And uh, they spend their summers in Israel like we do, but just not doing the same program. They have three beautiful children. Their two oldest children have 46 chromosomes, and their youngest daughter, Kaylee, has 47 chromosomes, which means she has Down syndrome. With the Samuels' permission, I want to share a, a sad story with a very happy ending, which depicts our responsibility to the other. The Samuels are Baalei Tshuva. They have uh, reinvested in what it means to be observant and traditional in Judaism. And they have put their heart and soul into being part of the community. Their two older kids are enrolled in a Jewish day school in Manhattan. Kaylee, their youngest daughter who has Downs, is three years old. And in the world of Manhattan, that's the time to start looking for your elementary school. So they went to fulfill the proper paperwork to enlist Kaylee in the same school that her parents, her parents have sent their other two children to. Now, you should know about Kaylee that she has tested very high in her cognitive scores and has regularly been seen by her physicians and by specialists in education as being absolutely prepared to be integrated and mainstreamed in the educational systems. That most believe that for Kaylee's sake, she's ready for inclusion. So, with that recommendation, the Samuels wrote their admission entry and recommendations for Kaylee to join the same school where her brother and sister attended. The Jewish day school where they attended refused to accept the admission letter and refused to even interview Kaylee for the school. Without an interview, she couldn't be allowed to enroll in the school. The Samuels were absolutely devastated. Sadly, there's no school in Manhattan that's a Jewish day school for children with learning issues or cognitive differences. They didn't know what to do. They were upset and they were frustrated. The head of the school said to the Samuels, we don't want to accept Kaylee because we don't want to be known as the Nebuch school, where Nebuch kids come and learn and have a Jewish education. Another administrator from the school foolishly spoke to the press and said, if we have Kaylee in our school, then we have to open the doors to any other kid with special needs. And we don't want to be known as that school, the special needs school. We want to be known as a premier academic Jewish institution. The Samuels were beside themselves. They were pained and they were crushed and they were questioning deep in their heart about this religion in which they had found and turned to later in life. Sadly, this story was plastered all over the newspapers in the tri-state area. And a rabbi who's a principal of a very large and very successful day school in Riverdale heard the Samuel story. He did some research and he called them on the phone and he invited them into the school. And literally within minutes of being on the campus, the head of the school turned to the Samuels and he said to them, we want to welcome Kaylee to our school where she can enroll in the pre-K program. This should be known as her second home away from your house. And this will be the place where she will be afforded an education, Jewish and secular. 
He said, we've never had a kid with Down syndrome before, but we're going to do everything in our power to pivot and to calibrate our systems so that Kaylee will learn here and be part of the community. The Samuels were overwhelmed with tears because what they had hoped for was going to happen. That young Kaylee, just like her brother and sister, would sit at the Shabbos table and say the Hamotzi and the Kiddush and know about the blowing of the Shofar and Rosh Hashanah and the shaking of the Lulav and Sukkot. Why should she be denied a Jewish education just because of the way in which God created her with one more chromosome than her brother and her sister? Since that time, the Samuels have taken their kids out of the day school where they were and rolled them in this new school in Riverdale. And next year, please God, Kaylee is prepared to start her education with her brother and sister and to learn secularly and Jewishly. The principal said one more thing that when the Samuels told us at dinner, we were sipping some wine for dessert. It was a beautiful Jerusalem night. I was overcome with incredible emotion and inspiration. The principal said, not only is it going to be great for Kaylee to go to school here and to learn, but Kaylee's going to teach every single kid that's in this school an incredible lesson that can never be found in a textbook, that every person is created in God's image and every person has the very right to learn and to be part of our Jewish tradition and part of our covenant because caring for the other is the price of admission and being Jewish. That principle got it. And every kid that's going to go to school with Kaylee is going to get it too. And I am so, so proud to stand at this Bima today and tell you that we have 315 kids in our religious school who come Monday, who come Sunday, Tuesday, and Wednesday to study and a whole host of other programs. And thanks to the impressive work of Matan and to the leadership of Jennifer Levine, our religious school has a program that has hired special faculty and a unique curricula for kids with learning issues. Whether it be Asperger's or autism or some other IEP, they can study in our religious school. And the greatest lesson that a typical learner will have who leaves our religious school will be understanding that they got a Jewish education next to a kid who's not a typical learner. And that every kid and every person is entitled to be part of our covenant and to be part of our Jewish education and to celebrate everything there is to being a Jew. If our kids walk out without lesson and they can't remember the Shema, then we will have succeeded because that is the price of admission. During this year of saying Kaddish, I have found every minion in town so that I can continue to say Kaddish every day. I go anywhere that will take me. Paramus, Teaneck, New York City, Muncie a few times. But often I find myself in Tenafly at Chabad. If it fits with my schedule and I can make it, I dive in there. And they always make me feel welcome. Chabad has had at its, as its hallmark these pedestrian booths. And I say that literally and figuratively that they have set up at pedestrian traffic places where you can engage in tactile meets vote of being Jewish. So perhaps where there's a lot of traffic, maybe Angelique or the Kings or any of these kinds of places, you see some people from Chabad offering to put on Tvilin or shake the Lulav, things that are highly tactile to engage you in the nature of mitzvah. Personally, it's not my cup of tea, but if it works for some people, that's great. No problem with that. Rabbi Shane is a man that I have known since I came to town. I like him. He's always been pleasant to me. We've shared pleasantries when we meet. No issue with him whatsoever, but we're not deep friends and we're not colleagues that talk regularly. 
But since the process of saying Kaddish and going to Chabad, I've had an altering experience about the Chabad movement, and in particular, about Rabbi Shane. And I want to share it with you today. Rabbi Shane has a few children, but he only has one son. And his son, Mendel, is challenged because he hasn't spoken, and he doesn't speak, and he has severe learning issues. Mendel is 13 years old, but he looks more like he's nine. And every morning, he sits right next to his dad at Minyan. And I sit in the back of the room, and I see Rabbi Shane with his son. And I see a totally different man. I see a man who has inspired me and an entire congregation through the contagious nature of his love for this child. He lovingly and slowly helps Mendel every morning put the tefillin on his head. And he kisses him as he kisses the tefillin. When it comes time for the Shema, Rabbi Shane takes his talus and he wraps Mendel in his talus with him. And he grabs his tzitzis and he kisses them and he gives them the Mendel to kiss. And then he gives the tzaka box to Mendel and he walks around the room and collects the charity from all who are davening for that day. I will tell all of you that I never once have been inspired by the prayer I have uttered when at that Chabad house. Not once. Not through one word in the Sidor have I been moved. But every time I go to that shul and I see Mendel sitting next to his father, I get a feeling in my spine and in my stomach that reminds me of what the essence of Judaism is all about. It is about loving the other. And I can tell you without question that Rabbi Shane understands that. We've never spoken about this. We haven't talked about it. I didn't even ask his permission to tell this story to you today. But that man has taught me more about Judaism and his love for his son than any book or any Mishnah or any Talmud and incorporating and loving the other. What a fantastic lesson that he shared with me and anyone who's blessed to pray with him. The Mishnah talks about a... Uh, an argument between the famous houses of Hillel and Shammai. It's one of my favorite arguments that's discussed. They ask the question of, what do you do with a bride on her wedding day who says to somebody, how do I look? And the problem is, she doesn't look too good. <laughs> now, I've officiated over 150 weddings, and I've never seen an unattractive bride in my life. Well, maybe one, but we're not going to talk about it. But what do you do if this person is really unattractive? And the Talmud's talking about this in this conversation. And she asks you on her wedding day, how do I look? Shammai says, you tell her the truth. And you don't say you have a beautiful personality or I enjoy the shoes. You say, you don't look too good today. But Hillel, Hillel says, Shammai, you're wrong. Shammai says, how can I be wrong? The Torah specifically tells us, separate yourself from things that aren't true. If it's not true, you can't say it. So how could I say that she looks good when she doesn't look good? And Hillel says, because it's a bride and it's her wedding day. And because her feelings are paramount to that piece of Torah, that little lesson that's in there. And if you think the lesson in the book matters more than her feelings, then you've missed the whole purpose of what that book is about. 
from the time of the Talmud and Hillel and Shammai to today, every single rabbi who has ever traced this law always sides with Hillel, which means that all of them are endorsing the very notion that feelings matter. The other matters. And how we treat someone matters. And if we have to put it on a scale, how we treat the other matters more than anything else. It is the very price of admission for being Jewish. Yesterday, we said this in our prayers for Kol Nidre. Hager Hagar Betocham, the stranger who is amongst us, is included in our feelings. Who is that stranger? Are they sitting next to you or behind you? What makes them the other? Since that week, about three weeks ago, Evie and Dory and I have talked a lot about Rosa Parks. When Evie found out that Rosa Parks was buried in Detroit, where many of my family members live, Eve asked if when we next go to Detroit to see family, we could go to her grave, because Eve would like to pick some flowers and put them down there. I promised her that we would. And I imagine, just like this experience, it would be a moment that would shape our lives as people and as Jews, And I look forward to making it happen soon. Over dinner over the last few nights, I've been explaining to Eve some of the many awards and accomplishments and acknowledgments that Rosa Parks earned in her lifetime. Perhaps one of the most moving to me was that after she died, she laid in repose in the Capitol Rotunda, being the first woman in history to ever lay in repose in the Capitol Rotunda, and only one of two black people ever to lay in repose in the Capitol Rotunda. Then she was flown to Detroit, and her body was received by the very bus that she protested in. And it took her casket from the airport through a procession to her final resting place. Along the way, hundreds of thousands of people lined the streets and cried and cheered for this woman, for possibilities that she made happen because of her determination, because of her seeing herself as the other. As I saw Evie and her mind working in that moment, I could see the celebration she had and satisfaction of how one person made a difference. Condoleezza Rice, who was the Secretary of State when Rosa Parks died, delivered her eulogy. And Condoleezza acknowledged what we're all thinking, that if it weren't for Rosa Parks, perhaps she never would have made it to become the Secretary of State of the United States of America. And I could see even Evie's eyes working and mind working at that moment. She never uttered a word, but I could see into her beautiful, innocent mind as she remembered to the time when we sat and watched the inauguration of our current president. And whether you support him or not, the fact that our country has come so far since that day in 1955 in that bus in Montgomery, that we can have an African-American president, was a moment of satisfaction that she connected in her mind by that ability to lead. What I want for Evie is what I want for all of you. Because while she is my flesh and blood, you are all part of my family. And what I want is for you to be empowered, to feel a sense of courage and to speak out in the face of wrong and exclusion, to be deputized by our Torah to include the other in our community, regardless of what it is that makes them the other. I want each and every one of your hearts to be shaped by Jewish values. And I want you to realize that those values matter more than any prop that we will shake on any holiday or any cloth or leather we can put on our body. That is what will matter most 
regardless of our background, regardless of our religious stripe, regardless of our observance level, regardless of whether we keep kosher or not, regardless of whether we put a yarmulke on our head or we are bareheaded, regardless of whether we sit next to our wives or we are separated by a wall. It doesn't matter. Our values are what connects every one of us, whether we were born into this religion or we chose this religion. That is our unifying common denominator. It is absolutely impossible, impossible to call yourself a Jew, to feel any pride in your Judaism, and to not think of the welfare and well-being and common respect of the other. My Evie taught that to me, and I share it with you. Who is the other? Is it the person with special needs? Is it the person with a different skin color who might be Secretary of State, who might help put you to bed and read you books? Is it a person with a different sexual orientation? Who is the other? Is it the person who votes differently than you? Who thinks differently than you? Who's shaped differently than you? Who might have a different feeling than you, who drives a different car than you, and different tax bracket than you? The other, in essence, is everyone that is not us. The other is everyone except you. It is that person behind you. It is that person next to you. It is the person in the sanctuary now. It is the person on the street now. That is the other. And as Levinas taught us, in order to understand responsibility, achrayut, you must first think of the other. On this Yom Kippur, muster the courage and arch your back and see the other in our community. Welcome them, respect them, and love them. For only if you see the other do we have the hope that the other will see us too. Amen.